You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hello, listeners. I'm Paige Smith with SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement, and thank you for joining us on Below the Radar. In this episode, our host, Am Johal, sits down with esteemed professor and writer of literature and humanities, Jerry Zasloff, alongside liberal studies graduate student, Nerman Gogolich, to discuss the relationship between nationalism and patriotism. They examine these similarities and differences through the lens of personal identity and political transformation, as seen in the former state of Yugoslavia. Jerry and Nerman delve into the building blocks of both ideologies, including examining what makes someone an other, the creation of national borders, and the use of political institutes to express these ideologies. Welcome to Below the Radar. Uh, really happy that you could uh, join us. Uh, we're with uh, Jerry Zaslov, uh, one of the founding faculty members at Simon Fraser University from way back in 1965, but uh, has done so many amazing things like set up the Institute for the Humanities, uh, teaches in graduate liberal studies, uh, but we fondly know him as the original Jay-Z, and he's a living legend, <laughs> if there ever was one. And Nermin Gogolic, uh, Neru Gogolic, uh, who is a graduate uh, student in liberal studies. Uh, last year, as part of the Vancouver Institute for <laughs> Social Research a series at the Orr Gallery, uh, Jerry and Nero were in a conversation about the former state of Yugoslavia, and discussions around uh, nationalism and fascism, and uh, discussions uh, around uh, identity in the post-Yugoslav uh, environment. And we're hoping to continue that uh, conversation this afternoon. Welcome to, to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Em. Yeah. yeah, I just thought we would maybe uh, start with, you know, picking up the conversation that both of you started at the Or Gallery, which was, you know, a little bit over a year ago. And I'm wondering if you can maybe sort of uh, start off with where the premise of that conversation uh, began and we can maybe start there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the conversation was more about the the question of identity in, in and, and political transition in the post-Yugoslav environment. And when one discusses this, then inevitably you will lean on the subjects of of uh, nationalism and patriotism. And today maybe we can uh, um, later on talk about nationalism in more um, in a broader and more general sense, but uh, maybe a good starting point at least as good as any other could be could be former Yugoslavia. Why this is a good point, uh, starting point for conversation is the fact that former Yugoslavia fell apart in a obviously very violent uh, civil war in the beginning of the 90s and uh, the end of the Yugoslav political and social project came about due to a number of reasons, including uh, economical uh, crisis, uh, geopolitical circumstances of uh, the late 80s and early 90s, maybe lack of certain type of reforms that should have happened and didn't happen in time, but the major aspect of it was actually the rise of nationalism. And it was the rise of nationalism that led to the civil war and led to the end of, of uh, former Yugoslavia, uh, a violent end of, 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 of this political and social social project that lived for 45 years since the end of the Second World War until the very early 90s. And uh, the, the rise of nationalism in former Yugoslavia started in Serbia. And this is a historical fact that has uh, shouldn't be ignored. It doesn't mean that the problem was uh, only situated there and that the blame for the conflict should be directed solely to, to the Serbian part. Uh, but it did start there. It was orchestrated by the elites in Belgrade. So it was orchestrated in the urban archipelago. Uh, but 
the recruits for the conflict came from from secluded rural areas. Um, the rise of the nationalism in uh, former Yugoslavia started in Serbia, but it was it was welcomed on every other part of 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 the country it was welcomed in croatia slovenia later on in macedonia bosnia and herzegovina and in that and in kosovo as well i think uh, when we consider nationalism uh, and patriotism when people talk about nationalism and patriotism in former yugoslavia you will have two points of views and i think that spills over into Europe as well and world at large. Uh, The most common view is the one which separates nationalism and patriotism and views it as two completely opposite um, phenomena. And then on the margin, uh, on the left of the political specter, you will have those people uh, who will criticize patriotism heavily and who will view nationalism and patriotism as basically uh, two sides of the the same coin. Uh, Recently, I was reading uh, George Orwell's uh, notes on nationalism that this is a, an essay that was written in 1945 in October, if I'm not mistaken, so very early after the Second World War. And in this very interesting essay, right in the beginning, in the first paragraph of the essay, um, George Orwell um, writes uh, as follows. He says, nationalism is not to be confused with patriotism. Both words are normally used in so vague, vague a way that any definition is liable to be challenged. But one must draw a distinction between them, since two different and even opposing ideas are involved. And to put that in, in, in a historical and, and social context, and maybe to, to, to understand it better why somebody who is obviously on the left uh, would write in this manner, I think it's very hard uh, to, to criticize patriotism in general. How can you criticize love for a homeland? It's almost impossible. Very, very slippery slope, a very hard position to, to take and defend, and especially in 1945, when, pa- when English patriotism won the Second World War and defeated the Nazism, then, then uh, these lines maybe make more sense. Also, preparing for the talk, I was rereading um, a very important, in my opinion, uh, essay on nationalism uh, written by Danilo Kish, who is one of the most talented and major uh, writers uh, who came out of former Yugoslavia. Danilo Kish, uh, his family and himself, he he comes from the Yiddish civilization, the Central European uh, Jewish uh, uh, civilization that unfortunately disappeared uh, during the Second World War. And for him, uh, nationalism and patriotism, he views them in a completely different manner. I would say that both of them, if we had to uh, say, uh, if you had to brand them in a political sense, they would probably both be social democrats uh, more than anything else so they have a very similar position on the political specter but their views of nationalism and patriotism as you will see when i read uh, danilo kish's quote are quite different uh danilo kish in his uh, uh, essay on nationalism uh, writes as follows for him uh, nationalism is also kitsch Uh, In its Serbo-Croat variant, it takes the form of squabbling over the national origins of those traditional gingerbread hearts topped with colored sugar. Um, He continues to say that kitsch and folklore, or folkloric kitsch if you prefer, are nothing but uh, camouflage nationalism, a fertile field for nationalistic ideology. Uh, And in his opinion, the upsurge in folklore studies, both in this country, meaning you Yugoslavia and in the world at large is due to nationalism uh, rather than anthropology. So we see how Danilo Kic has a much more radical view of patriotism. He doesn't say patriotism in these lines, but this is obviously what he's referring to. Um, so these are two very different opinions on a, on a, on a, on. On the same subject, and it's interesting that they come almost from the same part of the uh, political left. To maybe understand this better, we have to think about uh, patriotism in terms of 
what kind of um, uh, conditions are required for for patriotism to grow. And uh, uh, Zygmunt Bauman talks about this in his uh, seminal work, uh, um, uh, Liquid uh, Modernity. There is a chapter uh, that is the <laughs> devoted exclusively to patriotism and nationalism. And uh, he's, uh, there he talks about, about patriotism uh, um, as something that that places or rather lands where patriotism is not a problem are those where societies are secure enough in their republican citizenship not to worry about patriotism as a problem. So good examples of this would be the United States, maybe Canada, maybe England, places who, were, who have been very uh, efficient in exporting their conflicts for the better part of the last two, three hundred years, uh, and especially recently in the 20th century. Um, it is, that is a place where patriotism can grow and, 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 and feel comfortable and where it will rarely be criticized. On the other hand, there is not much room for patriotism uh, in, in a place like former Yugoslavia and, and all of the, uh, the newly uh, uh, established na- nation states of former Yugoslavia uh, that came out of this uh, civil war and came out of a right-wing revolution. Uh, there is absolutely no room for patriotism there, in my opinion, uh, because uh, even in places like Canada and, and the United States, when patriotism and patriotistic sentiments are tested by a conflict or a political crisis, is they have tendency to spill over into nationalism, and that 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 is something that is uh, obvious to those who 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 want to discuss it and view it. I'm going to jump in here to see if uh, Jerry wanted to uh, share some things on this distinction between nationalism uh, and patriotism. Jerry, you of course have uh, traveled a lot uh, through the former uh, Yugoslavia and Eastern uh, Europe uh, before it fell, but you've seen uh, this specter of uh, nationalism in various points uh, in your life and your own reading of, of history. Yeah, thank you, Am, and thanks for having me talk with my friend and uh, Nero and you. Um, let me start with a <laughs> just one word, and that word that Nero just used, former. Um, former tells you a lot about cultural memory and political memory. And if you're just adding that, that one word to nationalism and uh, patriotism. Nationalism didn't exist until, we might say, until the Enlightenment period, when uh, nation, the, the concept of nation-state was an undeveloped concept politically and, and social theory. Um, and this is what Marx tried to deal with, for example, and others, John Stuart Mill, um, others too um, were trying to find the the laws in history that would have, that led to the creation of the nation state. Okay, now does history is history driven by um, class conflict, which is where Marx took the the, the uh, historical trajectory. That is to say that the forces of production that lead to surplus and the elimination of certain kind, certain classes, the reduction of class conflict to a certain a, a, a warfare, a warfare. At the same time, in the 18th century or after the, the uh, Thirty Years' War, the, the wars of the, the religious wars that formed the European uh, borders that help form the European borders um, the the question of uh, revolution comes onto the historical stage and if you read Hegel the question of how do you read history so do you read history in retrospect in terms of the development of nations or are there other historical laws that one has to look at right and so <laughs> where Nero comes from, and we talked about this before, the kinds of conflicts that developed, that developed 
among so-called from the scene from the point of view of Orwell and British Empire building as backward nations. Okay, so what is the concept of backwardness about? What is that concept of backwardness? Backwardness produces um, the sense that there are people who are who do not are not circumscribed circumscribed by national borders, right? They're somewhere else. <laughs> They're strangers, and they wander. We talked about this at the, at, at the they wander around, and that they, they have to make a home. I'm getting around to the point about homeland, right? When you start talking about homeland and people wandering, uh, George Zimmel has this wonderful essay called The Stranger. The, the stranger is someone who came yesterday and stays today, and we don't know whether he's going to stay tomorrow, right? So he's, he's, he's ready to move. His bags are packed, right? Or maybe he doesn't even have bags. Maybe, and, maybe and therefore, he's suspicious. Well, we can't trust him. You can't trust him, but he carries something with him. He carries the idea of what I would call the uh, étranger, something different, something that has not been assimilated, not just politically, and this is the point I wanted to make for Am and for, the, for, for us today, is he carries something that, we, that began to be called culture, you know, that along with the Enlightenment, there was a missing link in all of the, uh, the development of, of nation states, and that's that the religion place, class, institutions were in a formative stage based on industrialization, right? Industrialization was the great leveler that was going to introduce something that would unite through treaties, for example, the Treaty of Trianon, for example, after World War I, that established the borders of where you're, of your homeland, right? And, and so here's my point, that something almost invisible emerges with the creation of the state nation, or is it the nation state, or is it the ethnic state? That, be, that becomes a cultural issue. But why cultural? Because new institutions have to be formed out of language, right? Schooling, law, right? And so what do you do with this nondescript place called, a concept called culture? Where does it go? But what you do with it is, is ethnicize it. That's what you do. The foreigner, the stranger, is bringing some, and this is the interesting point about by saying, oh, former, bringing something new to me. Carry, you're a carrier of culture as well as a new, an identity. Does that make any sense? Oh, it absolutely does. And I think uh, that's exactly what Kish was writing about when he says that uh, that, that nationalism in a Serbo-Croat uh, uh, variant, the nationalistic Kish, it takes the form of squabbling over that national origins of those traditional gingerbread. Right. It's, it's, it sounds uh, grotesque almost. It sounds um, uh, laughable, but it is the reality. They are fighting for the cultural uh, heritage and heart cultural history that was there before the idea of the nation state. It was there and still is uh, on both sides of the border, but they want to acquire it for themselves so they would be able to build their national platform and cultural platform on those uh, acquired elements of shared cultural history. Right. So what capitalism does in its earliest stages, in its manufacturing stages, in its urban stages, it needs to also provide what I, would, what I call, and Ernst Gellner talks about this, a liberatory idea, something that would enable a people to be formed and also participate in this new post-enlightenment capitalist, whatever you know you want to call it, to some concept that unites the outsiders. You know, does that make any sense? Oh, yeah, that. absolutely. So if you if you can if the West if the imperial colonial democracies with their concept of as a Kantian ethical tutelage can teach those people who are backward something about our culture, you have to somewhere inst help institutionalize their culture and their language. But how do you do that? How do you assimilate that? I, I want to pick up on this uh, point, Jerry, that you mentioned around um, 
industrialization, the development of the nation state uh, in a kind of post-Westphalian context, because you do see as you have the acceleration of this uh, modernist project, uh, particularly after the First uh, World War, uh, where people, uh, you know, impacted by the cultural impact of the, the First World War, you have these uh, right-wing neoconservative, neo-fascist thinkers, uh, people like uh, Ernst Younger when he writes about total mobilization in terms of the use of the state uh, towards particular ends, or Carl Schmidt talking about uh, the friend-enemy distinction. And um, I'm wondering how some of the, uh, in terms of, of thinking about the nation in these uh, variant things, they don't just come from uh, the philosophical tradition cuts across the, the, the political sphere. In, in some sense, some of these ultra-conservative thinkers, neo-fascist thinkers, in a way, bring something to bear um, onto this notion of the, the nation-state itself. Nationalism becomes symbolic at this point throughout the, uh, the transition from backwardness, whether capitalism can exist in a single country or across borders becomes part of that, that uh, dialectic that you're talking about. Nationalism and, and early internationalism across borders has to um, promote, first of all, industry and has to create a class of workers that can be established in its home country. This means dialectically, if you look at Hegel or Marx, the creation not only of a cultural concept, what is cultural? And this is where Orwell uh, kind of falls down and tries to pick up because the, the national British project was to introduce British culture into the colonial country, not, not just instant through institutions of schooling, not just religion. So British imperialism in the Middle East and elsewhere introduces the notion of Britishness, Englishness, right, to which the backward people have, have to, to adjust. Part, have, well, not only adjust, but to imitate, to mime. And it means, it means the creation of, as Orwell was himself a bureaucrat, an intelligent one in India, it needs the creation of an indigenous bureaucratic class to create the transitional institutions, right, that that enable the colonial to provide labor, but also to thrive and to have um, distribute their products. Now, can this happen in one t- territory like uh, the former <laughs> former Yugoslavia, F F U F Y U, or ex Yugoslavia? That's ex- another one. Okay. Ex- <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, in response to to M, um, the political then meets. Ethnicity, you know, it beats ethnicity. It doesn't know what to do with it. <laughs> what do you do with ethnicity? You know, what do you do with brown-skinned people? What you do with it is you think in terms of your own national traditions, who is ethnic outsiders like those other people in your own culture? Well, what do you do? You turn to Christianity. The Jews are outsiders, right? anti-Muslims, Islamic, are outsiders. So there's a history of colonial empire building homeland, homeland um, of having to deal with not just the proletarian, I'm making a point here, not just the proletarian class or the underclass, but have to deal with those people who never had real nations before. So but the point is, nationalism at this point is really interesting in terms of what you you were quoting before in in some sense the way that you talk uh, uh, about um, nationalism from uh, this period uh, you could map it on to the contemporary and the now in the sense that the nationalisms that we see today be it uh, Modi in India or Erdogan in Turkey or Viktor Orban or or, 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 or the orange man down south is the creation of an enemy or a creation of the other within one's own borders and also a creation of the enemy outside the border and that the strong man is the one who has the answer. Absolutely. There is a template uh, that we're talking about that comes from a previous place that we can place on to the now. There is there is this one typical narrative on the right uh, which we can see unfolding right now south of the border and that is the the fact that uh, you have to you as a leader as a strong leader as a nationalistic leader or in terms of uh, Donald Trump probably people would say patriotistic 
you have to convince those who are in the majority that they they are the ones who are actually uh, endangered. So if we look down south of the border, that is exactly what is happening right now. Uh, the white people in the United States of America are still very much the majority in terms of population. But uh, the way they describe their reality right now is that they feel endangered in their own country. And that is something that was displayed in Nazi Germany. It was displayed in the 90s in the in in, in former Yugoslavia as well. It's a very typical narrative uh, that 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 just comes up over and over again, uh, uh, and we are witnessing it right now uh, in the states. And obviously, there's not much talk about American nationalism. Uh, but there's a lot of talk about American patriotism, and not everybody talks about it uh, all the time. I mean, it feels like the country is based on it. I mean, it's almost impossible to, to, to critique it, and I don't think any politician could survive that point of view. To critique American patriotism, I think, is equal to a political death. I don't think we'll hear anything about that anytime soon, not even from, from, from such characters as Sanders or anybody else, because you cannot survive that. This is why the, the mainstream media, which, by the way, only rarely interviews academics or people who have some history with these ideas, why the mainstream media talks about unification and division. They blame Trump for dividing the country, right? But, and the, the answer to that is a, what I would call a, a sublime, supranational concept of nationalism, <laughs> if, that, if that makes any sense. It means somewhere Americans have figured it out and that our, our nationalism is different than any other people's former nationalism, right? That we're, not, we're above that. You know, we're the good guys. We're the good guys, and our nationalism has a history. The way in which we have developed across the Western Hemisphere is that we are diffusionists. If the sociologists would maybe call us diffu- to call the Americans diffusionists, they they spread out. You know, they, they're not colonialists; they're diffusionists. Okay, so what does that mean? It remains. It means that. What is the political institution that can, t- can contain American nationalism? What, what is the institution that can actually express it, contain it? Well, it's, we know what it is. It's been you know, uh, defending Europe, uh, defending territories in Latin America. It, been, it meant the Vietnam War. It means fighting against other nationalist forces. Communism becomes Russian nationalism. Does it make any sense? Yes. Saying it that way. So my, my point in terms of what you were talking about is nationalism is a fake universalism, in, particularly in American life. It's a symbolic way of, of identifying your ethnic particularity. But if you try to translate it into universalism, medical care, you know, racial, race justice, courts, prisons. I mean, look at the number of blacks and Hispanics who are in the prisons in the United States. Look at the police forces. Just add up the police forces in the United States, military, state, community, um, uh, that, that, govern, that are the infrastructure of the, national, the symbolic nationalism. Okay, so I'll stop there because I'm going to make another point. No, I, I I think the case with nationalism, uh, Zygmunt Bauman, going back to that yep. uh, very important book of his, uh, talks about, he says that nationalism, uh, this is a figurative way to talk about it, but I think it, it's very much on point. He says, nationalism locks the door, pulls out the door knockers and disables the doorbells, declaring that only those who are inside have the right to be there and settle there for good. And when we, when we, Think about that, and uh, within the context of the former Yugoslav uh, civil war, the civil war of the early 90s, former Yugoslavia, this rings um, true because the case was basically exactly uh, like this. Uh, those 
members of the same ethnicity uh, who found themselves outside of the borders, outside of these locked doors, and tried to come in during the conflict were never welcomed on all of the sides. So the Croatians from Bosnia and Herzegovina who came to Croatia during the conflict, being ethnically Croatians, were not welcomed. They were viewed as the others. The same thing happened in Serbia when unfortunately through uh, ethnic cleansing people were made uh, to into refuge uh, and and seek that refuge within the borders of Serbia where they sh- logically should seek refuge because they are Serbs, but they are Serbs from Croatia. And when they came, and Serbs from Bosnia and Herzegovina, so when they came to Serbia, they were not welcomed there. And the same thing happened in Bosnia and Herzegovina on a smaller scale with ethnic Muslims from Montenegro and Serbia from this uh, historical region called the Sanjak. Uh, When they tried to, because they were exposed to um, Serbian nationalism and they were pushed out of their uh, um, uh, villages and towns and uh, and cities, and they uh, seek refuge in Bosnia and Herzegovina. They were not welcomed there. So, so this uh, this statement of of Bauman's, uh, I think, is very much on point and tells us a lot about what, how how nationalism functions and what 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 are its dynamics. It's an interesting uh, point because I think there's examples where uh, the state, in cases of of conflict, it's it's very clear where. Uh, these uh, burgeoning nationalisms are making choices about who's in and who's out. But even in what would be considered like a stable democratic context, you have the use of the state in the formation of the the social order. The state is so involved in the ordering project. And in Canadian uh, context, you know, one of the critiques of multiculturalism is very much that it's a state-driven project uh, that's built around a welcoming of all. But in in fact, it it smooths over the differences. It smooths over um, the hierarchies that are in in, in place. And it very much is a state-driven sort of narrative project with policies, institutions that's meant to prevent a kind of uh, present a kind of uh, window to the future uh, yes and but w- w- given the actual political climate it feels very hard <laughs> to critique multiculturalism doesn't it it does but then on the other hand i think you're very much right and payman Wahabzadeh, a professor at uvic uh, sociology professor wrote a very interesting book called uh, exilic meditations where he talks about this a lot because his experience is that of uh, exile. Uh, he came to, to Canada from Iran uh, and he critiques uh, the hyphen um, the, the identity uh, and and multiculturalism because he says that yes it does welcome you and it gives you a certain space but it designates that space for you and it gives you only that space. This is your space. You're welcome. You you can live with us. You can live among us. You're welcome here, but this is where you have to be. And we will remind you of your place with this hyphen because you're Iranian Canadian and you're you know, you're Chinese Canadian, but you're not British Canadian, <laughs> because if you're British, then you're Canadian. There's no hyphen there. But there's hyphen when you come from other places uh, in the world. And it's, I, I believe he's, uh, he's made some very interesting points there. Uh, and I do agree with, with, with his critique. And I think it's important to, to have that in mind. Payman Vahabzade also has just written a book, uh, as you, you saw that uh, on violence, going back to this carrier of a, of an, another culture, who carries that culture? The the idea that somebody is not only different from you, but carries a a racial quality, a- ethnic nationalism based on borders. I mean, of course, the passport was begins in the late eighteenth century and the nineteenth century. The use of the passport, the building of dams that blocked movement of peoples, right? Um, the but the, the idea that the state, the nation state, can control randomness, can control that which we have not historically been able to control except through um, czarism, Prussianism, um, former kingdoms that managed to Austro-Hungarianism, could control what people like Zizek and others could control the psychological random, randomness of people who cannot be identified. 
Are they going to be identified by what? By their language, you know, by their by their looks, by their color, or are they going to be identified by some transcendent concept like class? Right? You can join across borders by saying the working class can, you know, is this, has some common denominator in the building of what? Well, in the building of society. But nobody knows what society actually is. We know what culture is. And as Weber pointed out, we know what community is. You know, Gesellschaft and Gemeinschaft. We know Gemeinschaft means that which is together and joins together. Gesellschaft is a business. Gesellschaft means administrative structures that are institutionalized. Am I making any sense with this, with this <laughs> distinction? So, so where do you put people who are not just marginalized but carry their, their interesting stories with them that have not been written down, right? This is, comes to Benjamin's point, you know, in the theses on the philosophy. Who, who writes down the stories of those? The Islamic culture had a long history of literacy, right? I'm glad that you brought up Benjamin because I was like, oh, we're 30 minutes into the interview and Jerry Zaslav hasn't mentioned Walter Benjamin there once. There we go. But I'm still disappointed there's been no Kafka so far. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kafka and Brecht used to, in different ways, would say <laughs> that they ch- you changed your your ethnicity or your, your legitimacy by simply crossing the street in middle in Central Europe, Middle Europa, right? Nobody knows where Middle Europe, Central Europe well, yeah, right. But you crossed the street and you became a different person. Well, the thing that also Central Europe, having studied in Hungary, of course, they call themselves Central Europe because they always want to post the Eastern Europe to the east of them. Of course. Because they're not in the east. Nobody embraces the <laughs> Eastern Europe. Uh, everybody finds a way to, to wiggle out of it. Uh, and, 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 and former Yugoslavia was not a part of the Eastern Bloc. Obviously, in the West, a lot of people will forget that or they don't even care. So they will push you into the Eastern Europe and then we will try to explain how we were never when a part of When you tell people you're from uh, Rijeka, they say, oh, I traveled to Prague once. Exactly, like, exactly. <laughs> and, and, I mean, yeah, and these things happen uh, and I, I, I'm not offended by it. It's actually funny in a way. Uh, but w- when you think about this... But also the, pathetic too. Like, well, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem with Central Europe, as you guys already said is uh, where is it uh, it's in more than one place for sure depending on who you talk with and it's not a geographical term but more of a political if not almost philosophical and uh, when you look at the map of Europe uh, you, you will find that Prague is more to the west than Vienna <laughs> and if you talk to people and tell them that Vienna is in Eastern Europe they'll tell you you're crazy if you tell them that Prague is in Western Europe they, you will have the same answer but if you look at the map uh, it definitely shows 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 at the fact at your, at your um, talk at the or one of the things that you talked about was Rijeka the city that you come from it's the third biggest city in uh, uh, Croatia and trying to read uh, this uh, question of uh, identity through the history of the city and how you think about it uh, today well, it is a very complex uh, question. Obviously, the reality today is that Rijeka is a is a city on the uh, in the west northwest of of Croatia, and it is obviously in that terms uh, viewed as 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 a Croatian city. But its history. Uh, recent history even that of the second world war and pre second world war was was uh, tied to 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 the european post post world war uh, turmoil rieka uh, was for a short Where the period the torpedo was invented torpedo was invented there the, yeah, that's a big thing obviously uh, rieka was uh, part of the, um, uh, the austro-hungarian uh, monarchy and uh, second most important uh, harbor and uh, if we think about the history of the city one could definitely say that the golden age of the city was that uh, when Rijeka was a part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy uh, and uh, after the end of the empire it uh, had a short spell as a as a autonomous uh, temporary autonomous region which was actually uh, uh, a state, uh, the uh, independent state of Rijeka, a part of the League of Nations, uh, which would be the equivalent of the UN uh, today. That was a very short period of a year and a bit. And after that, it became a part of the uh, uh, Italian uh, fascist state. It was uh, obviously on the uh, very 
east border of the of the of the uh, Italian fascist state, and in those terms, uh, very much marginalized. Uh, not the best years for the city in, in in any way. And after that, it was a part of the socialist uh, federative republic of Yugoslavia, where Riega had um, uh, its second golden age. The city grew a lot. Uh, it changed uh, in many ways, and the ethnic structure of uh, the population changed severely. Uh, unfortunately, the Italian minority was almost fully pushed out, uh, uh, and in its place uh, came the people of the South Slavic uh, republics from from Serbia, Bosnia, and Herzegovina. So Rijeka, in many ways, was a Yugoslavia uh, uh, in a nutshell. Uh, when when one thinks about uh, the, the 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 ethnic um, uh, structure of the population, and now in in modern uh, Croatia, Rijeka has. Uh, um, a, a quite uniform ethnic structure more than ever uh, before in its history. It still remembers its history uh, and it's still uh, to a certain degree brands itself. The city is branded as the city of multicultural coexistence, which is, in my opinion, more a uh, thing of the past than it is a thing of the present. But that doesn't change the fact that they are pushing this narrative, the people that are running the city, they're branding it, the city as such. And I think it works very well because when you travel around former Yugoslavia, you have to use a lot of energy to deconstruct the myth of uh, Rijeka, uh, the, the multicultural city. I think probably you do something similar when you travel to Europe and uh, you're faced with this um, idea of Canada as the world's peacemaker, uh, this amazing country where only good things happen. I think you, you probably, I don't know, you can maybe tell me something about that. <laughs> I, I imagine you have to explain certain things. I mean, you were in London recently. Uh, <laughs> you're, Everybody loves Justin Trudeau uh, there. there totally talk about the tar sands, but <laughs> it's a digression. Let me, let me respond to one, the, the Kafka Brecht or Walter Benjamin um, a point that Am brought up. And that, <clears throat> What we're talking about, I mean, Kafka's at the end of the trial, the uh, Joseph K., who wakes up one morning and he's arrested, and, he, and, he, and uh, at the end of the novel, he comes to uh, the doorkeeper, the, the, the custodian of his life, and and he wants to, to know, okay, is it time to come into the, uh, uh, go through the door, go through the gate. This is Benjamin's point, too. Um, and the doorkeeper tells him that your name is not on it. You know, it's not yours yet. And then, the, and the Joseph K says, uh, "I'm not, but I, I have an identity. I am a person. I know who I am." And the doorkeeper, in in essence, is saying, um, "Well, this is a different kind of moral order that we have here. Uh, you don't belong here yet, right?" And that's where the novel, that's where it ends. And, and uh, but. The point being, going back to my earlier point, that the doorkeepers have multiplied in nationalism. You know, this is society. There are many doorkeepers, many institutions, schooling, political. But what that means in terms of Weber and and Amo no, no more than I do about this, it means that nationalism has to delegate its powers and its dominate its its former given powers, in Benjamin's sense, mythical or sacred control of violence and violence-making relationships into new institutions. And one of those institutions is revolution, right? This is, you know, the hist this is the, the idea that social movements have a, an unknown history. So what are social movements now under nationalism? So in the American model, which you, which, and in the Yugoslavian, uh, yet to be melted down model, <laughs> right? Like the American melting pot, or you man brought up the Canadian mosaic, whatever, whatever that, the official multiculturalism um, act. You know, um, Charles Taylor, and, and who, you know, who writes about that. Um, my point here is, is that. Nationalism is still in, as a concept, historical concept. To historicize it fails because it cannot produce a moral order. Christianity or Islam 
could or early peoples who are tribal peoples who are we call them peoples right we call them a people right first nations right the implication of a first nation is that there's an origin in a moral order in which everyday life can be understood even if it collapses in northern Quebec with no schooling or water or disease, still there's some concept of going back, of homeland of of a people. I mean, one can sentimentalize it, and you know we can talk forever about that. But there is still this legitimacy of culture, you know, even though it's a fractured term. Am I making sense with this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to this notion of of a people knows how to delegate power to others, uh, right? In a classroom, I'm delegated as an authority, but what I'm doing is transmission, transmitting what I know to, to other people who are also delegated in some utopian way to carry on with something. But in culture is this field that's always contested as well, right? So in in the Quebec context of the Quebecois nation, when you have uh, these further uh, debates around uh, secularism as a concept, what that means, how it plays out, and now the utilization of the notwithstanding clause related to religious symbols. And Charles Taylor's involved in that too, although he's uh, backtracked and tried to push back uh, a little bit around uh, uh, public servants uh, wearing uh, religious signs. So this concept of secularism within the quote-unquote Quebecois nation gets politicized within this nationalistic frame to create um, that enemy or othering uh, in, in, in its usefulness as a political co- in, in a political context. And he's caught he's caught with this notion of the self, right? The the the, the idea that there's some internal uh, which Adorno called power protected inwardness, some some inwardness that we carry with us that can communicate to, to others, right? And which the Quebec law, laws now are, and this is very important in terms of nationalism. Who makes the laws, and to what extent are the laws an extension of something that we call, call nationalism? Who makes those laws? Well, with the rise of nation states, you change. This just goes to Carl Schmidt and and uh, the judicial, the remaking of law. Right, you cannot have nationalism without law. It, it doesn't exist. Of course. Yeah. So we sentenced Charles Taylor to a rereading of Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> it's also nationalism. Also, does not uh, exist uh, without the other. That is fundamental for nationalism. Uh, it only exists in in reference to the other. Uh, without the other, there's there is no us. Uh, <laughs> That's there's a no, good point. That's there's no, there's no nationalism uh, we, we, without the other, and, uh, and 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 the differences that separate us from them, uh, quote unquote, uh, are are important, uh, and the way uh, those are seeked out. Um, uh, is also important, but when you have certain um, nations that 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 share so much in terms of their history, uh, in terms of their culture, in terms of their language as well, and this is the case of uh, former Yugoslavia and, and the nation states that came out of the conflict, then this search of the differences that set us apart from them, they have a, a grotesque uh, notion because it's very hard to find them. But obviously, they can be they can be sniffed out. If you really, really uh, try to do it in earnest, they will be found. Yeah. Um, I always think to myself, I told Nero, I think once when we were talking, that when I hear the word other, I immediately feel othered. <laughs> that, that, I, that I think, okay, now, where, where am I on that spectrum? You know, um, Does it mean propertyless? Does it mean uh, well? But the thing is, you will be placed. Uh, of you, course, you can't you can't tell where you are. Uh, you can only be you can only listen to them. Yeah, and they will tell you where where your otherness is, where where your place is, because uh, your identity. Jerry oh. Zaslav is he in the one percent? <laughs> in some type of a one percent, I'm sure he is, but not the, the one that you're talking about. And then, then you start counting. 
you know, <laughs> and you start taking statistics, and you, and you used to have a, a, a political battle over the census, mm-hmm. you know, right? And then, and then the 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 pathological man in the White House wants to j- rejig the census, right? I mean, he, he I don't want to <laughs> say more more about that that in in the terms of psychiatric psychiatry, but one has to talk about psychiatry. One has to talk about uh, when discussing uh, when discussing the man in the White House. When discussing power figures, you know, uh, when discussing what the the notion that that um, anti-otherness, whether it's anti-Semitism, anti-Black, anti-Hindu, you know, uh, anti-is whatever. When when you start counting people. When you start counting them, that's the road to hell, right? I mean, I mean, who's counting and what for what purpose, right? Um, that so the the point is that <clears throat> the formation of law-abiding people, right, needed population census. You, need, you needed to determine who's in <laughs> who's in the border. Do, do women go to school? Can women own property? Can Jews own property? You know. Who's good in school? As a matter of fact, in the 19th century, one of the Judeophobic aspects of German anti-Semitism, in a period of philo-Semitism in the 19th century, right? Because Jews were needed, they were emancipated, they could go to school. The Jews were out, and this is not my idea, the Jews were outperforming other peoples in the schools to the extent that they were advancing into the what I would call the the transcendent nationalist professions, law, teaching, professoriate. Medicine. Uh, pardon me? Medicine. Medicine, exactly. Um, have I left some industry, right? Industry. So the democratization of the culture through the institutions, the other people begin to use the tools that enable them to advance, Right. Heidegger, for example, who's no friend of mine, but I know how to read him, I think, uh, be, was nervous about that, you know, was nervous about the idea that institutions of modernity, right? Am I making sense here? Uh, institutions of modernity diffuse themselves and lose their sense of borders, you know. Living in the Black Forest, then the Danube River flows east where those people were right and the, the through central europe right yeah. <laughs> narrow through central europe his homeland going back to heidegger's homeland was not nietzsche so much although partly he was looking for that homeland that that black, that Dan, that river river would take him to as the ur homeland Mm-hmm. From which all, from which, real Europe descended. Does that make it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real Europe descended from that. So my point is that um, I think one has to develop a new a new term for nationalism, something like ideological peopleness or something. <laughs> the, the idea that there is such a thing as a people, you know. Yeah, yeah, nationalism. Yeah, I understand. I understand the point. So I have, I have one last uh, question for both of you, which does have nationalistic uh, overtones, which uh, has to do with the term "we the North," <laughs> which is. Can you give us just a little bit of your thoughts on the Toronto Raptors' run in the uh, NBA playoffs? I'll this year? say something really short, and then I'll leave it to Jerry because he understands both of those aspects of the question better than me, I would say. But I joined the bandwagon somewhere halfway through the semi-final conference series, and I had the pleasure of watching most of those games with you, Em, and a number of your friends and our mutual friends at your place. It was amazing. I remember that forever because I don't think it will happen soon again. <laughs> Uh, it was it was fun. Uh, it was uh, it was interesting. I did see a little bit of patriotic sentiments rise on the streets of Vancouver and, and in that room as well, uh, uh, which is 
not not strange at all. Uh, we started with George Orwell, and I'll I'll just finish with him, maybe, uh, uh, but on a better note. Uh, Orwell uh, had was obviously he's a, a novelist, but he's I would say maybe even more adept in 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 writing essays, and 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 here his journalistic work was. Uh, sp- Special, I would say. Uh, his um, collected essays, uh, Why I Write, and other essays, they were published um, in the 50s, I believe. Uh, one of the essays talks about sports and patriotism and nationalism. And he talks about the visit of uh, CSK Moscow uh, that came to England in 1946 to play Arsenal in London. And uh, CSK Moscow, I believe, won. But then there was a lot of controversy there because people on the stands were saying, oh, this is not CSK Moscow. This is the Russian national team. What are they doing? They're tricking us. And he was talking about how obviously sports and nationalism, sports and patriotism go hand in hand. And his last uh, paragraph of that essay says something that I hope there won't be a game played in Moscow. But if it happens, I hope we'll send an amateur team. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, patriotism of the basketball court, right? <laughs> uh, that's what we're. Yeah, that's or, what you're talking right, about, exactly. and, the, and the the Croatian and the Serbian basketball players are, are don't take a backseat to anybody. Um, here's the point: that transcendent something does transcend uh, political nationalism, and it's not just cultural nationalism of of sports. Um, but which also has to do with um, women's lives, lives that you live as child, as children, and you imagine another life for yourself better than the one that you've lived. Basketball actually comes out of urban ghettos, but baseball comes out of the agriculture, the, the farmlands of, uh, of the United States, and uh, soccer comes from the streets. It's a working class working sport. Working class sport. That's Be- been hijacked recently. Yeah. Well, and it's worth a lot of hijack money. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, if you read the essay in the, in the New Yorker about the, the, the corruption, you know about that. But, but the point is, uh, the, the idea, well, they tried to take Canadian basketball away by stacking the cards against the Raptors and not wanting the the uh, Golden State to lose, right? They try pretty hard. I'm, I'm just being facetious, <laughs> but the point the point being that some transcendent, cons- some transcendent experience pervades anti nationalism. I mean, when when Trump attacked LeBron James and attacked the gold and, and the Golden State. Something, and he attacks the football players, right, for kneeling. Or he knows something. He knows something about nationalism. But he, even in terms of the range of sublime terror, which he's an artist, artistic about, imparting sublime terror to his linguistic uh, sickness, how he talks, how he repeats himself, how empty phrases come out. Okay, so here's my point: that that basketball, in, in, that, that or sports, whether or ice hockey in, in in Canada, are places where generations can form their own history. This is people's history. I read what is people folk history, right? And it's you talk to people who remember cultural history of how what they played sports who was Wayne Gretzky you know people become authorities about the culture of sport does that make any sense mm-hmm. right but they don't do only a few people do that about politics you know only a few few uh, an elite group remember the formation of these insti- institution of politics and that's one of the problems of mass culture yeah right of trying to form uh, oppositional uh, oppositional movements within mass culture, 
which is the you know the work of the Frankfurt School trying to identify Thank that. Thank you order. so much uh, to both of you, Nero Gogolich, who's a graduate student in liberal studies at SFU, and Jerry Zaslav, uh, the living legend, the original Jay Z. Thank you very much, both of you, for Thank for joining. Thank you for having yeah. us. Thank you for having us. Thank you again to Jerry Zasloff, the original Jay-Z, and Nerman Gogolich for joining us on this episode of Below the Radar. If you would like to hear another discussion between Jerry and Nerman, you can listen to the Vancouver Institute of Social Research's public talk entitled Transition and Identity in Post-Yugoslav Environment. You can find a link to this recording in the episode description. As always, many thanks to our team that puts this podcast together, including myself, Paige Smith, Rachel Wong, and Ferrella Pinoyos. David Steele is the composer of our theme music, and thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. Mm-hmm.